Welcome to the Vascular Forum Podcast. My name is Agla Kovinolita. Today we're going to dive deeper into the virtual vascular textbook chapter on thoracic outlet syndrome by Drs. Frank Smith and Rebecca Winterborn. We're pleased to have with us Dr. Rebecca Winterborn so we can dive deeper into this complex disease. Dr. Winterborn works at North Bristol NHS Trust in England and has a key interest in thoracic outlet syndrome. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure, Agla. Thoracic outlet syndrome, or TOS for short, is a relatively rare disease with a complex diagnostic process. Have there been any significant changes in the diagnostic process in, let's say, 10 years? And what is the diagnostic sequence we should follow today? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that the key with diagnosing thoracic outlet syndrome still really hinges on a good history, a really scrupulous history from the patient, a really comprehensive examination, and then the investigations vary a little bit depending on whether you're considering a diagnosis of venous arterial or neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome or, or a combination of all three. And I guess that the biggest change over the last 10 years is the role of scalene and pectoralis, pectoralis minor blocks, which can be helpful in the, the diagnosis, particularly of neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. Yeah, thank you so much. We have venous, arterial, and neurogenic TOS. Let's first focus on the venous TOS. It would seem that the treatment varies dependent on acute or chronic presentation. Could you please give a brief summary of treatment strategies for venous TOS? Sure, so absolutely. It really varies depending on the timing of the presentation, but also very much on the person who has the symptoms. So for an acute presentation of venous thoracic outlet syndrome, the options are to manage with anticoagulation alone, to manage with uh, venous thrombolysis, and really the gold standard would be venous thrombolysis along with either, depending whether it's a cervical or first rib, a resection of the anatomical structure that is causing the, um, the venous thrombosis. And there are a number of things that will affect which of those options are taken, not least the shared decision with the patient around how important it is for them to have a fully functioning arm going forward. So for example, a patient who is an elite athlete who needs to use their arm for their sport would be more likely to undergo thrombolysis and first rib resection than someone who is perhaps an older person who, in whom it's happened in their non-dominant arm and having a bit of swelling in the arm intermittently isn't going to significantly affect their quality of life. So it really, really varies on, on the patient. In terms of the chronic presentations, really the, the, you know, the management is around explaining the diagnosis to the patient and getting them to understand why this may have happened. You know, then if it's sort of beyond the two-week time in which you can undertake thrombolysis, then anticoagulation would be the course of treatment. And sometimes the vein will recanalize, in which case one can consider surgical intervention later down the road. But if the vein remains occluded, it's treatment with anticoagulation in that first phase to reduce the risk of pulmonary embolism. Um, but once they've finished that course, 
they can then, you know, come off the anticoagulation. And the majority of people will still be okay and won't have severe, you know, chronic venous uh, symptoms, but that, that's the risk with, with not managing it with sort of the, the gold standard thrombolysis and surgery. Yeah, thank you. Do you think that conservative management of venous toss, and by this I mean simple anticoagulation or thrombolysis followed by anticoagulation without the first rib resection, might be underreported and thus comparison of conservative and surgical outcomes could be skewed? It may well be. It may well be. I mean, all of the literature around thoracic outlet syndrome, particularly venous thoracic outlet syndrome, is relatively sparse compared to other conditions. Um, the, the, The few studies that have been done looking at just undertaking thrombolysis and anticoagulation without the, the rib removal suggests the recurrence rate of around 40 to 50 percent. But as you say, you know, w- without a huge amount of data on it, it, it is difficult to know. And that's purely looking at the anatomical findings. And of course, what's important are the symptoms that the patient has ongoing. Um, and, and I think there, there probably is a gap in terms of the literature around those real patient outcomes rather than just looking at the anatomy. Yeah, thank you. Shifting gears, I can imagine that most junior residents who have not seen many TOS cases find exposure during surgery, especially with the transaxillary approach, rather difficult. Could you please share any tips and tricks with our listeners on how to get good transaxillary approach during surgery? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, the transaxillary approach, uh, as a trainee, you're often either holding the arm or you know you're trying to peer and see what's going on so I think you know the key is the positioning of the patient and getting the patient in the right place to get the best access to the axilla and that's an art in itself um so we tend to use a sort of a blow-up mattress that you can then it's a vacuum mattress that allows you to position patient in the appropriate position so in a, in a lateral position uh, with the axilla facing north if you like and then yeah an appropriate arm support that ensures that one can lift the arm to increase the space in the axilla so that that's the first consideration the next consideration is ensuring that the incision is in the correct place it, if you have the incision too far down the, the thoracic wall, you can be fooled into thinking the rib that you're feeling is the first rib when actually it might be the second rib. So that's a, that's a real key in terms of the incision just at the bottom of the, of the hairline. Next is a, a lot of the transaxillary approach without, yeah, a lot of, a lot of, the, a lot of the transaxillary approach, if you don't have a, a camera to be able to visualise, is with, with feel. Um, so really you know, having a clear picture in your mind's eye of, of the anatomy of the space and the, um, the manual feel of where the ribs are and where the structures are is really, really important. And that's something you can only really do by doing the operation. Um, so it's quite hard to explain, but certainly, uh, you know, as you're being taken through it, make sure that you are can I feel this point? You know, what are you feeling? Being able to feel that flat surface of the first rib and the difference in the feel of that compared to, say, the second rib is, is really key. 
following the, the subclavian vein as it as it dives into the axilla is a, is a good landmark in terms of knowing that you're heading in the right direction. The kit that you use is really important. So having, um, for example, a, a, a suction device that has a light on it, having a retractor that has a light at the tip of it, and then having the appropriate instruments for clearing off the rib and cutting the rib are also key. Making do in that situation is, is not a good idea. It's really about having the appropriate kit. And as always, light, good assistance, and recognising, I think, that if something isn't as you're expecting, that you stop and pause and take your time and ask for advice if you need it. Yeah, thank you. But I would just like to ask here, is it a common approach at your hospital to use a camera for visualization during surgery? Or is it uh, something that is up and coming in uh, general for thoracic outlet syndrome? Uh, so we, we do use a camera and some centers, in fact, will will use a, a fully sort of thoracoscopic approach, you know, a video assisted approach. It's not something that we uh, we use video assisted, but with the normal incision to be able to see deeper into the into the wound. But some centers are, of course, doing a, a fully video assisted approach. Yeah, thank you so much. What are the aspects during cervical and first rib resection that require extra attention, in your opinion? So with the with the supraclavicular approach, there are a set of sort of six key uh, visualizations that you need to see, and so it's a very I mean it's such a beautiful operation that kind of step by step approach of seeing each part of the anatomy. And the first key view is of the scalene fat pad, and reflecting the scalene fat pad in order that you can then place it back over the structures to reduce the risk of scarring around the nerves. The second is the view of the anterior scalene muscle as it inserts onto the first rib, ensuring that it's been dissected so that you can create a space between that and the brachial plexus in order to, to remove that. The next is the view of the upper part of the anterior scalene muscle because obviously you want to you know resect as much of that um, muscle as possible so that's trying to get right up to the level of the, the c6 transverse process the next is the view of the middle scalene muscle on the first rib with the nerve root um, fibers of the brachial plexus and the visualization of the artery and the long thoracic nerve is another key nerve to have seen and i didn't mention at the start with the scalene fat pad obviously the phrenic nerve is really important that you visualize the phrenic nerve and protected the phrenic nerve. The next is the view of the posterior neck of the first rib with the T1 nerve root passing underneath it. And that's really important to see that before you start dividing the rib. And then finally, the anterior portion of the first rib and being able to place the rib shears medial to the scalene tubercle so that you're taking out an appropriate section of the first rib. So each of those key points need to be completed before moving on. And within that, it's ensuring that you're not tugging and pulling on the brachial plexus and risking a neuropraxia. Being really clear again, you know, it's a lot about visualisation in your head of, of what you're expecting to see but recognising that there are anatomical variations that could mean you suddenly see an extra strip of muscle, an extra bound that you're not expecting. But if you know the anatomy in detail, then if you see something you're not expecting, you can do something appropriately with it. 
Yeah, thank you for such a detailed description of the extra attention details required for this approach. Now, looking at neurogenic TOS, we would like to ask what role can Botox injections play in the treatment and diagnostics of neurogenic TOS? Yeah, so Botox is, a, is an interesting one, and it's something that in our center we've only really just started exploring. And I think the jury is perhaps out a bit on the benefit and role of Botox. You know, obviously, Botox works by relaxing the muscles. The idea being that some of the symptoms that one gets with neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome are to do with, you know, the tension in the muscles over the nerves. And by, by relaxing the muscles, that allows more space around the nerves. I guess the difficulty is that it's quite a short-lived response. And therefore, perhaps, as you've said, it has more of a role in diagnostics in a similar way to the um, local anesthetic blocks of the muscles rather than a treatment. Although some have shown that people do get a lasting response with, with Botox injections. And whether that is that, you know, the body, that's difficult, isn't it? Does the body get used to that muscle being more relaxed? Your posture improves so that as the Botox wears off, you're left with more relaxed muscles. It's, it's difficult to know, I think. But certainly, you know, again, it's part of the armamentarium of, of, of diagnostics and treatments. And perhaps, you know, if someone is really suffering with symptoms, the decision has been made for surgery, it might be a, a sort of temporising measure to, to provide some pain relief whilst waiting for the final intervention. Yeah, thank you so much. Why is the preoperative physical therapy so vital, especially for neurogenic TOS patients? And after what time frame should further interventions be considered? So I think, you know, as a surgeon, you know, we, we love operating, but the, the reality is that the risks of any kind of surgery, in particular thoracic outlet surgery, are there. You know, they're, they're not small. And so we really want to ensure that everything has been tried from a conservative perspective before undertaking operative intervention. And many people who present with neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome have a, a classical posture of, of rounded shoulders, craned neck, and um, you, you can see how that reduces the space um, in the supraclavicular fossa and you know, a, around the um, you know, pectoralis triangle as well. And I think for patients, what I found, I think is one of the keys is really explaining the anatomy. So in my clinics, I always have a picture on the screen and I explain the anatomy so that they can understand what is happening in their own body. And I think if they're able to visualize what's happening with the muscles and then use that in terms of their physio and understanding why doing the physical therapy is important, I hope that that goes some way to adding to the, the argument around why we don't want to dive straight in and do an operation. In terms of timing, it's, it's really difficult to, to give a time frame. And, and often the difficulty is that patients have waited a very long time to get a diagnosis. And it may be that their perception is they've had lots of physical therapy, but that the person who has been giving them the exercises to do, if they don't have an understanding of thoracic outlet syndrome, or they have a fear of thoracic outlet syndrome, a fear of making things worse, that they won't necessarily have been given the right advice in terms of the, but they're so desperate that the thought of them carrying on with more physiotherapy 
it, it is hard because of the pain and the symptoms that they're suffering. But I, I would guess six months, something like that, would be a reasonable trial. But I think that's the importance of developing a multidisciplinary team in the management of thoracic outlet syndrome and working closely with physiotherapists um, and colleagues who have an interest and have an understanding of the anatomy so that they can provide the right um, exercises. Yeah, thank you so much. And now last arterial toss. These patients are rare and thus the approach towards treatment varies. But surgical release is adamant, right? And what approaches and techniques do you recommend specifically? Think again around arterial thoracic outlet syndrome. You know, true complications from arterial thoracic outlet syndrome are rare. To develop an aneurysm due to compression, to develop um, embolus formation because of an aneurysm, to, for patients to present with an acute ischemic limb, you know, related to arterial thoracic outlet syndrome is rare. But a lot of people present with claudication type symptoms. So if someone has a job where they are, for example, a mechanic working under a car, I had a lady who was a mechanic and constantly working under the car, her arm would go white and, and she would have to stop painters, decorators. I mean, there are multiple jobs where having just compression of the artery without necessary complications can be, uh, you know, significantly affect their quality of life. And I'm sure in those cases there is an element of, of neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome as well. So it's, it's difficult to, to absolutely pin it down. But I think that's the majority of cases we see and we tend to use a, a supraclavicular approach to treat those. And you often will see that, you know, a, a band or, or a structure that is compressing the artery and can explain why they're getting the symptoms. So a, a standard supraclavicular approach in, in those cases is what we use. In people who present in a more acute fashion, obviously it's then determining where along the axillary subclavian artery that the problem is occurring and doing a, you know, thrombectomy and belectomy and then repairing the artery might be possible with a, a patchplasty. Equally, it may require bypass in the same way one would do, you know, bypass for an arterial problem in the leg, but obviously also dealing with the underlying anatomical structure that is causing the compression. And again, the, you know, the approaches vary from centre to centre as to whether it's a, a mixture of a purely supraclavicular approach. It might be infra, in, infraclavicular or, or a combination. And again, that depends on, on the findings, really, on any imaging um, of where along the vessel the, the problem is. Yeah, thank you. And to wrap up, what is the required follow-up for TOSP? And what is the risk of recurrence or other complications for each of the three modalities? So in terms of follow-up in our centre, we see people sort of four to six weeks after surgery for review, um, and then perhaps at three months as well. We do ask all our patients to complete um, a DAS questionnaire, disability of the arm, shoulder and hand questionnaire, just to make a comparison preoperatively and postoperatively in terms of their quality of life and function. We don't tend to have a longer follow-up period than that unless there are any any particular concerns from the time of surgery the recurrence rates are, again you know really difficult to put a put a figure on it early recurrence particularly with neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome you know will occur if for example if you haven't got good coverage of the nerves with the, with the scalene fat pad 
it's, it's more likely to do with you know ongoing compression at some level and certainly more recently with the, the knowledge around compression at the level of the pectoralis minor um, muscle we have started examining that with the um, local anesthetic blocks beforehand and we're more likely to do that at the time of original surgery rather than waiting and seeing but that's always an option if so you know if someone presents later with recurrence and they haven't had division of the pec minor pec minor tenotomy then we will start looking at whether that might be a cause in terms of recurrence obviously scar tissue around the nerves again uk practice is very much to, to leave the nerves alone and try not to fiddle around with them too much although in in north america my understanding is that they will do a more formal neurolysis and cleaning of the nerves they may then even wrap the nerves to try to to reduce scar tissue so again that's a you know variety a variation in practice depending on the the surgeon doing the procedure i think overall you know success rates rather than if we say success rather than recurrence probably about 80 percent but again the key is that conversation with the patient beforehand and then having a really clear understanding of the complexity of the anatomy, the complexity of the diagnosis and the treatment, and a recognition that it isn't a quick fix. This isn't a, you know, surgery isn't the panacea, if you like, and that there is a risk of ongoing symptoms um, and there is a risk of recurrence. So I think, you know, about 80% of people have a really good result from surgery. Recurrence rates, certainly for neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome, is said to be about 30%. But again, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to, to pin it down. In terms of the complications of surgery, obviously, it, it varies slightly depending on the approach. There may be damage to any of the neurovascular bundle structures. There may be uh, damage to the phrenic nerve with the use of the diaphragm damage to the uh, pleura and therefore risk of pneumothorax bleeding into the chest so hemothorax and then of course just the ongoing need for physiotherapy I think after the surgery to ensure that that functional aspect is brought back in terms of building up the muscles again um, we have to consider obviously particularly with venous thoracic outlet syndrome the risk of reocclusion of the vein um, the risk of pulmonary embolism. But I think that shared conversation with the patient is really key um, in terms of the understanding of sort of managing expectations. Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you very much for an interesting discussion on thoracic outlet syndrome. It has been a pleasure chatting and learning from you today. Oh, my absolute pleasure. I really enjoy talking to you. I hope everyone finds it useful. We would like to remind all of you about the eLibrary's Topic of the Month, where we announce a new chapter of the virtual vascular and add great educational-related videos and podcasts from the eLibrary. This email goes out to all ESVS members, so if you're not a member yet, subscribe now and do not miss out on great educational content. Talk to you soon and have a great day.